all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and grow hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to the cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues them, him from them all. He protects his bones, and not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Miles. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as lead pastor here. If you're new, we're so glad you're with us. Um, If you're not new, we're always glad you're here. But uh, those who are guests, we want to start as we do each week in our time of teaching by actually putting our stuff down for a moment. And uh, just opening up space to listen to God. Um, all of us, I think, in different ways, kind of come in Sunday, come in hot, so to speak. And um, we don't have a lot of space for uh, just slowing down. And so one of our practices is just to slow down and to create space to listen to God and ask God to speak. So if you want to just <clears throat> get into your body and take a deep breath in and just be reminded that God is present and here with us this morning, take a deep breath out. And breathe out those cares and concerns and worries. You want to take your hand, you could even lift it up and, and just surrender those things to the Lord if you want. But however you kind of get into that moment, let's just ask our Lord to speak to us for a moment here in quiet, and then I'll pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you are here, that you are with us, you are present to us by your Spirit. We just ask that you would speak, Lord, we, your servants, are listening. Help us to to hear you, to respond in faith and obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have heard me talk about this, but... um, a little bit of a different angle. This summer, our family had the opportunity to take what we call a legacy trip, which is just our way of basically saying we can't afford to do this a whole lot to the kids, so it might only happen once or twice. <clears throat> but we took this trip to Yellowstone. 
And we had been planning this trip for years. It was supposed to be before COVID. And uh, prior to this trip, I'd say that uh, I knew a lot about Yellowstone, a lot of facts. So I'm a researcher. Uh, you know, I love to kind of research things and plan things. And so uh, I've been doing a lot of preparation, internet research, uh, interviewing friends who had went to Yellowstone. What did you like? What did you not like? What would you do differently? And kind of collecting all that into Apple Notes and just kind of crafting out my plan with all my all my data. Um, we watched some documentaries, which are actually a lot, some good ones, um, and some that are not so good for kids, uh, if you've seen some of the Yellowstone documentaries. But um, I don't know how much you know about Yellowstone, but there are some interesting facts. It's 3,472 square miles, which just for perspective is bigger than Rhode Island and Delaware combined, just Yellowstone Park. It's amazing. 10,000 plus hydrothermal features, 500 active geysers. It's basically a, a, a volcano. It's on a volcano. And, um, and it's the, it has the largest concentration of mammals in the United States, 67 different species, including some of the highest concentration of bison uh, and grizzly bears, which makes for fun while you're out hiking uh, all throughout the park. And there uh, actually are 285 species of birds. I mean, birds I've never seen with colors I've never imagined. Um, as we're going through the park. Now, these are the facts. But everyone knows if you really want to get to know Yellowstone, you have to at some point stop researching about Yellowstone, stop planning about, uh, towards Yellowstone. And you have to get in your car and drive a godless number of hours west. I don't know how many hours we drove, and I, I just felt like we were in the plains forever. Um, you have to, though, buy a National Parks ticket, and you have to experience Yellowstone for yourself. I mean, it's one thing to, to think about Yellowstone. It's another thing to be in Yellowstone. And the best way to explore Yellowstone is to get in there and drive those winding roads. Like, it's a figure eight, basically, the way the Yellowstone... I mean, you can drive for hours and hours and hours, days. And it literally, if you're going the right speed, it takes you to get through the park. And then, of course, there's the thousand-plus miles of hiking trails, and some of those are built trails that you can actually walk on, which are the ones that we preferred. I think I've t- told you guys, not much of a hiker. Um, we love those trails. But then you, if you want, there's side trails, and you can get off into the side trails. And those trails themselves are not the beauty, but they allow you to kind of put yourself in the way of the breathtaking beauty of some of the park's greatest treasures, the waterfalls, the, the animals. I mean, you get off in these trails, and you can see some really unbelievable sights. Now, just like you can know a lot about Yellowstone without ever experiencing the beauty firsthand, many of us settle for a similar dynamic with God. You can know a lot about God, never actually go into the park, so to speak, and experience God. I mean, there's something about lingering in like that whole area, right? Like south of Yellowstone, the Tetons, you just can't describe it. Like when you linger And it just provokes awe. It provokes beauty. It provokes something primal when you get into a space like that that is hard to describe. But if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And same thing with God. J.I. Packer, theologian and author of A Previous Generation, said this in a warning to Christians about this problem. He saw this problem a generation ago. He said, uh, first, there's two kind of temptations. First, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of God. I'm sure that many of us have never really grasped this. We find 
in ourselves a deep interest in theology. We read books of theological exposition and apologetics. He's clearly talking to people who don't have kids. This is like college. He's talking to college students or something. We dip into Christian history and study the Christian creed. We learn to find our way around in the scriptures. Second, and he says, oh, that's good and fine. That's, that's good and right. There's nothing wrong with that. Second, one can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. In this analytical and technological age, there's no shortage of books on the church, book stalls, or Amazon, if you want to bring this into our moment. Sermons from the pulpits on how to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles, how to tie their money, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to lead men to Christ, how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or in some cases, how to avoid receiving it. I love that. That's hilarious. How to speak with tongues or how to explain away Pentecostal manifestations. Whatever else may be said about the state of affairs, it certainly makes it possible to learn a great deal at second hand about the practice of Christianity. Yet one can have all this and hardly know God at all. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. This fall, we've been looking at stories of people in the Old Testament as part of our pastoral priority this year of seeking God together. We looked at some stories of people in the Old Testament who encountered different aspects of God's character, his goodness, his love, his presence, his trustworthiness, his holiness, and we plucked like five or six of thousands that we could have talked about this fall. We see as those people encounter God's character, they're provoked to seek him in response. As he's seeking them and they get a revelation of his character, they are provoked to seek him in response. And our hope really this fall up to this point is just to show you the why. Why do we seek God? Why should we seek God? And what I hope that you took away from this first couple of weeks is that God is the safest place in the universe to run with your soul's desires for beauty and for goodness and meaning and truth and salvation. We wanted to re-narrate who God is and, and have a fresh encounter with his goodness because so many of us have faulty narratives about God. And so we wanted to just kind of lift our imagination and scrub our imagination a little bit and say God is actually the safest place to run if you want to experience true transformation and wholeness in life. But the question remains, how? Right? We need a vision. Simon Sinek tells us, right? The why before the what and the how. This is the why. Now I want to get us into the what and the how. For the next several weeks, we want to look at how do we see God? What does it actually look like to see God? I mean, it's great to know about his character, so to speak, to like map out the terrain. But how do we actually get into the park? right? How do we actually get into God's character, or maybe the better way to put it is, how do we get God's character into our lives, get it into us in a way that transforms us? And so for that, we want to turn to the Psalms together for the next several weeks. The Psalms have for centuries been the church's prayer book, and probably more than that, a map with a, just for kind of seekers and pilgrims and exiles who as they're seeking God, left behind for us some pathways, right? I want you to think of the Psalms, what we're doing here, less as, like some of you like to cook, and there's, there, I, I don't, I'm not a huge cook, but I know there's kind of two types. There's like the artists who like to cook, and then there's like the bakers who like the formulas, and you like to follow the math. Okay, this is not, the Psalms are not baking, okay? They're cooking, 
I want you to think of them like trails and pathways in Yellowstone. There are literally hundreds of pathways. And, and the pathways that are left behind, they're not what change us, but they put us in the way of transformation. Those pathways have to be explored, and we have to encounter the God to whom those pathways lead if we're going to experience transformation. But we need these sages, we need these guides, these cartographers of the soul to lead us into these pathways. And so that's what the Psalms do is they give us invitations. They give us some direction and what it looks like to seek God. I love the Psalms. We have a church rule of life if you're not familiar with it. Every day there's a reading from the Book of Common Prayer from the Psalms because we need this daily reminder of how to seek God. Right? We need the humility to learn from those who've gone before us. These are ancient pathways. So I want to start today with one of my favorites, one that's been really helpful for me as a person that struggles oftentimes to get off like the internet and out of the research and out of ideas into the reality and into the experience. Psalm 34 has been one of those psalms for me that has really revolutionized and continues to revolutionize the way that I think about and encounter God. If you'll notice, there's two verses here that lay out kind of the main theme, the main point of Psalm 34, verse 8 and verse 5. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. And then verse 5, those who look to him, look to God, are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. The psalmist here, David, is giving us a vision for a life that's marked by experiencing God in such a way that transformed him and can transform us into beautiful people. That's the invitation in this psalm. That's the mountain. Experiencing God, right? Taste and see the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? And then as a result of that, as we do that, as we behold him, we look at him, we experience him, we become radiant. Our lives become radiant, glowing with the very presence and love of God and the grace of God. Now, I love, what I love about the psalmist is that they, they lean heavily on imagery, on the imagination. It's poetry, right? They're songs, it's not meant to be a technical manual, you know, that you would write for like a, a product. This is not a product manual, okay, with all the technical specifications. They're not meant to be analyzed, mastered, broken down into bits and pieces. It's meant to be a psalm that touches our imagination, that sweeps us up into a reality. That's the psalms. And it uses, the psalms use imagery of the senses, touch, taste, smell, desire to describe salvation and discipleship. Salvation is not meant to feel like uh, a class at Butler University or a, a technical laboratory. Salvation is meant to feel more like a dinner party, a feast. And man, what a difference. <laughs> Some of us are approaching it like a laboratory and find it to be very dry, dull, boring, and we're restless. And it's like, God's like, hey, hey guys, there's a feast over here. You want to come to the feast or you want to sit in the classroom? 
If you don't believe me, listen to the Psalms. It's crazy. This is crazy language. Psalm 119. We've been going through this in our rule of life the last week. This is all about delighting in God and experiencing God. Psalm 119, in delighting in God and delighting in his, in his word and his law and his Torah. How sweet your word, 103, is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. 119.18, open my eyes that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. Psalm 81.10, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Psalm 63, which we'll look at here in more detail in a few weeks. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. You satisfy me as with rich food. There is a massive difference between God being your salvation and that being an idea or a concept and God being your satisfaction and that being a reality. More to come on that. But do you get, do you get the imagery? It's the imagery of a feast. It's the imagery of something we, we touch and taste and we bring into our lives that changes us. I don't know how many days, I, I was, I was uh, out of my mind by this point on the trip, but we, once we got to the Tetons on our trip to Yellowstone, um, we had driven all day from Casper, Wyoming. I don't know if you know where Casper, Wyoming is. You don't need to know. It's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I know we drove a long way, and we got to the Tetons. We had a long day in the Tetons, beautiful Jackson Hole. We got into the park. We saw our first moose at like 7.30 at night. It was amazing. And then we realized, oh my gosh, I realized, uh, oh my gosh, we have an hour and a half drive to our resort, which is like a winter ski place in the summer without air conditioning. It's not resort like you think resort, okay? Um, like no food, it's just, you're just a place to sleep. Um, so we're, we, our place is over in Driggs, Idaho, which is an hour of winding roads from Jackson to the west side of, uh, of the Tetons. And man, we're just tired. And so my, my wife and I are like, we gotta, we gotta find him. Just like, we gotta find a place to eat. Will you please just get on the you know, internet and look up a place? So yelping places to eat. And it's like 8.30 at night, you know, Driggs, Idaho, not a ton going on in Driggs, Idaho. Ever been there? Again, small little ski town. Number one on the list of Yelp places is this place called Tatanka Tavern. <laughs> my wife's like, you seriously wanna take the kids to a tavern? I'm like, they say it's the best food. We don't have a lot of options. Let's go to Tatanka Tavern at 8.30 or 9 at night. We pull into Tatanka Tavern. It's as you would imagine it to be. You can't find it. We, pull, we park. I have my phone in front of me. The blue dot is, is, is right there, and we can't find it. It's up on the second floor, so it, it, inside of another tavern. So it's a tavern within a tavern. <laughs> so we walk up the stairs, and, and again, it's just like you would picture it a bunch of middle-aged men sitting at the bar drinking, and then us with our kids. <laughs> but they do have coal-fired pizza. So we walk in, and they seat us. And we have very low expectations, right? I mean, our team is just like, we have no expectations. Everybody's tired, kind of, you know, uh, just ready to be done. We got a 30 or 45-minute drive. I haven't told the kids yet. We have a 30 or 45-minute drive still to the resort. And they, they start to bring the food. We order an appetizer, and we're like, wow, this is amazing. Then we order some salad. We're like, this is the best salad we've ever had. 
And then we ordered the pizza. We're like, this is the best pizza we've ever had in Driggs, Idaho. And all of a sudden it goes from like bickering and, you know, fighting, getting on each other's nerves to like, you're amazing. No, you're amazing. This is great. Look at that sunset out there. And it completely revolutionized our perspective because we had this experience of a great meal and it stirred up just joy and awe and beauty and good vibes. And then we were able to kind of, you know, take the, the last leg of that trip and everything was great for the rest of the night. And the rest of the trip, we just kept talking about, can you believe Driggs, Idaho? Driggs, you totally surprised us. That's a metaphor for what it's like to experience God. That, that's, that's the invitation to us, is to see salvation, to see di- discipleship as a meal as feasting, as tasting and seeing that God is good. I don't know what your favorite like bakery or restaurant or coffee shop, for some of you it's Rise and Roll, I see you there on Saturdays, maybe it's Amelia's. I don't know what's your restaurant of choice or coffee shop of choice. I'm a Southern guy, so Root and Bone, uh, love Root and Bone, love uh, the Eagle. Um, if you have ever been on Root and Bone, been into Root and Bone, they have amazing Amish chicken, fried chicken. The Amish know what they're doing with chicken. It's amazing. Now, there's a huge difference between walking into Root and Bone to experience the meal. Like, I'm there for the Tabasco honey what goodness, whatever that is, they glaze on. I'm here for this. I want to get into that. I want that in my mouth and getting into my body. Now, how weird would it be, though, if you went to a place like that and you'd heard about it and you're like, I would like the recipe for your Amish chicken. And you're like, oh, cornstarch, flour, salt and pepper, lemon powder, honey Tabasco sauce. Thank you very much. And you go home and then you get on Instagram and you get with all the other people who love root and bone. And you're just like, man, they got some great recipes, don't they? Their ingredients are top notch. Like, that would be weird, right? Like, can we acknowledge that would be, that would be odd? And some of you are like, what? What's wrong with that? That's what I do. I, okay. <laughs> There's a huge difference between experiencing something and talking about it or substituting the experience for the recipe card. And yet, how many of us approach God that way? We settle for memorizing and mastering the ingredients instead of enjoying and being satisfied with the meal. We get into theology, we get into doctrine, we get into Bible study, the ingredients, and again, good ingredients, nothing wrong with those ingredients. We get into social justice, we get into serving the poor, we get into mercy, good, but we forget that the real feast is God himself. There's a crazy book that I, I would never have read on my own, so I'm just admitting this in front of you guys. Um, a friend of mine who is an artist, who is a romantic, he is, uh, in many ways, what I'm not, you guys know, um, but like, he's an Enneagram 4, big, deep feeler, you know, he, he loves to cook. He said, one of my favorite theology books, we were talking one time, he's a pastor in New York City, he's like, one of my favorite theology books is this book called The Supper of the Lamb. It's by this priest who's also a cook, and he writes about theology through the lens of cooking. And I was like, huh, I would definitely never read that book, but I'm going to read it because you told me to. And so in the, in the book, he has this great section on where he's kind of lamenting like what efficiency and technology have done to the food experience. 
And, and, and he has this parable where he imagines this couple just kind of like talking about food in this very efficient, bland kind of way. And it's just like, let's just get it over with. It's fuel, you know, whatever. And he's abhorred. He's abhorred. And so he's lamenting this. And here's what he says about, about food and about how it connects to the kingdom of God and about experiencing God. Man invented cooking. His name's Robert Capon. Man invented cooking before he thought of nutrition. Just sit with that for a second. To be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Nourishment is necessary only for a while. What we shall need forever is taste. Food is the daily sacrament, I love this phrase, of unnecessary goodness ordained for a continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than useful. That's a quote. That's a quote. This is what God invites us into, taste and see. The psalmist invites us beyond intellectually knowing about the character of God. He wants us to existentially get into it, get it into our bodies, our souls, our minds, our memories, our imagination, the core of our being. And just like a good meal, it has to be chewed. It has to be tasted. It has to be savored. We have to linger with it and allow the flavors to get into our mouth, to salivate and mix it up in our mouths. And then eventually, we need to internalize it and just like a good meal, metabolize it so that it gives us energy and strength for life in the world. And it's the same thing spiritually. We need to experience God. We need to taste. We need to chew. We need to internalize, metabolize, so that God can energize our lives in a broken and painful world. We need to learn to stir up a hunger for God, an anticipation for God's presence, right? Because 80% of joy, the old saying goes, is anticipation, right? You're thinking about the meal. Some of you guys start at like nine in the morning. You're just like thinking about dinner, you know, and you're getting excited. Like that kind of hunger for God that then turns into consumption and delight and transformation. And it makes us radiant, he says. Radiance in the Bible is all about transformation. To be radiant is to experience an inner transformation that occurs always. You see it in Moses. You see it in a lot of places. It's an inner transformation that occurs when we feast on the beauty and the glory of God. As we behold God, we don't just taste beauty, we don't just taste glory, we don't just taste radiance, we become beauty. We become beautiful. We become radiant. And I love what he says there. When we look to God, when we behold his beauty, we become radiant with joy, and in that space, there is no room for shame. There is no room for guilt. There's only room for God to fill us and satisfy us with his goodness. We want to be radiant. My prayer for us is that we would be a radiant church that seeks the radiance of God as we behold him and become like him. And that's so different than what is on offer for us in our cultural moment, right? Where we, 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 we seek radiance, we seek glory, we seek beauty, but we seek it in all the wrong places. We seek it in wealth. 
We seek it in our jobs. We seek it in status. We seek it in our children or our spouses. We seek it in our own identities. We seek it all kinds of places. And man, can I just show you a picture? Um, I referenced this before. Anybody know where this comes from? This is what happens when you seek radiance anywhere but the presence of God. <laughs> this is from Rangers of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, one of my favorite movies growing up. Remember the scene where they stole the ark and you had these greedy people that were trying to monetize and, and use the ark for power and God's presence shows up and then that one scene, literally everybody just, it's like claymation, but like everybody melts. That's what happens when we seek radiance from the outside in. It melts us, it destroys us. God wants to give us an inside-out transformation. When we behold his beauty in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, we become radiant and it glows out of us. It's not something that we have to try to get into us through human means. So what are the pathways into that? How do we, how do we experience that? What I, so so th- let me just recap. We, we have this invitation to taste and see that God is good. God wants us to experience him in such a way that as we experience him, as we behold him, as we internalize his love and his presence and his goodness, we are transformed and we become radiant, we become beautiful. But how do we do that, right? That's the question. And I love the psalmist doesn't leave us blind. He tells us. David tells us. Three pathways or side trails, maybe, to experiencing God in this passage. Worship, intimacy, and trouble. The last one being very counterintuitive. First thing is worship. Notice what David says. I will bless the Lord at all times, verse one. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim or magnify or exalt the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. This cluster of words here, blessing, praise, boasting, they're worship words. Right, because we boast in the things that we care most about. We boast in the things that we treasure. We boast in the things that we cherish most. It's what we put on our Instagram page. It's what we put on our LinkedIn page, right? It's the thing that occupies what we talk about. You wanna know what you value? Watch what you talk about. Watch what you post about. Watch where you spend your money, right? That's where you begin to tell what you really worship. It's, it's, it's your boast. It's the thing that gives you a sense of meaning or significance, your possessions, your accomplishments, your strengths, your relationship, who you know or who you don't know, what you know, what education you have. And man, we live in a cultural moment that is inviting us all of the time to boast in the wrong things, mostly to boast in ourselves. The cultural architecture around us encourages us to be true to ourselves, right? To boast about what we feel like is who we are on the inside or whatever. You know, it's about authenticity, being your authentic self, which is just another form of self-preoccupation and self-love. Boast about your strengths. Boast about your resources. Boast about your networks. Boast about your competency. This kind of self-preoccupation does not lead to life. It does not lead to delight. It does not lead to radiance. Because when our our hearts are so full of ourselves, there's no room for God. God can't show up and he can't speak. 
He can't ravish us. He can't delight us. He can't speak to us or through us. And so there's this invitation to worship, right? David's saying, I, I, I need to look outside myself to boast. I can't boast of myself. I didn't deliver myself. I don't have what it takes to be what I need for myself. And so he begins to praise. He begins to worship. Worship is this re-indexing of our souls, this recalibration of our bodies, our minds, our hearts, away from boasting in ourselves and back towards God as the one who satisfies us, as the one who strengthens us. God is the one who strengthens me, David says. God is the one who knows me and his eyes are the only ones that really matter. He's the one who loves me and his love is most foundational to my sense of self. He is the one who gives me meaning. As we create space for these habits of praising God, we make room for the spirit of God to bring the glory of God and the beauty of God into our consciousness, to make us aware. It, it literally has the capacity, neuroscience tells us that we have brains that are what they call neuroplasticity, this, this idea that our, that our brains can change, that neural pathways can be rewired, our nervous systems can be changed through experience and encounter, our, our very spirits can be transformed. And that's what praise does. It changes us, changes our bodies, changes our brains, changes our, our minds, our souls. And there's two kind of like versions of this that you see here, um, two little micro practices that you see here in terms of what does worship actually look like? We talk about that word a lot. What does it actually look like? There's two things that David's doing here. One is expressing gratitude. Gratitude is worship. The second is corporate worship. He's inviting others to worship with him. Gratitude, right? This psalm is interesting because it's, it, the way that it's structured in the Hebrew, it's not just an off-the-cuff, like David, you know, is like this artist, and he's like sitting out in the woods somewhere, and he's like, I'll just come up with some song. We think of David as like, you know, like this organic, no, like, it's, it's called, this is called an acrostic. So each line is a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in other words, David has taken some time and energy to think about, to reflect on, to meditate on, to integrate, and then to write out this psalm in a form and a structure of a gratitude of God's goodness toward him in the middle of his story. My point is that David is, is showing us how to be grateful. And it's so important, right? Like, why is it that we can go through a week? At least, at least this is me. Why is it that we can go through a day or a week and experience so much goodness. And yet by the time we get to the end of the week, all we can think about is all of the badness. We get fixated on all the negatives. I mean, you'll have a whole week where like, you had 168 hours and you could have 167 good ones and you're thinking about the 30 minutes of the negative stuff that you experience. Psychologists actually have a word for this. They call this negativity bias. Our brains are wired to focus on and to remember the negative. I love this uh, quote by one psychologist. It says, the brain is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. It means nonstick. Oh, yeah. um, researchers show, research shows that we tend to pay attention to and remember negative and painful experiences at some sort of a ratio of around 14 to 1. Did you know that in a marriage, when you have 
a conflict or something negative, a negative experience with your spouse. John Gottman, who's one of the leading researchers in the country on this, he talks about how for every negative experience in your marriage, you need five positives to overturn that one negative. Now you think about how critical we are towards each other. You think about how often we are negative towards each other and how much positivity is required to overcome that trust gap. And so the key to focusing our attention on the good is gratitude. It's not just experiencing goodness, it's learning to express goodness. Like, I see this and thank you. Thank you, God, for this. And it's, it's gratitude, not just for the big stuff. Like, this is a big thing right here, the, the big deliverance. We need to be grateful for those moments where God rescues us, God saves us. And I would encourage you, that's why. It's helpful to write out your testimony. It's helpful to, like, I had this experience in uh, therapy a couple of years ago where I was asked to just recount my story. And I went back and just drew a line from the time I was little and as far back as I could remember to now, and just the highs and the lows. And like, where has God been present in those moments in your life? And I have this sheet that I keep in my office. And I can go back and I can rehearse and I can remember and I can add to, because when I get in a bad space, I'm like, oh yeah, God has been good to me. We need those big moments of memory. But we also just need like everyday opportunities to be grateful. Just the little things that we miss day in and day out. The Ignatian, uh, Ignatian, uh, the Jesuits, Ignatius, had this practice that they developed called the daily examine, where it was just an opportunity to sit down at the end of the day and just review your day. And just literally like replay your day in the presence of God and say, where has God been good to me today? called those consolations. And then just to name them. God, thank you for being good to me. I mean, how much would it change your, the way you go to sleep at night if you ended not doom scrolling, but actually just with a quick little review of your day and thanking God for all the ways he's been good to you that day? And that kind of gratitude, that kind of praise begins to kind of ignite like and cascade. And, and then it becomes something that we invite other people into. Notice again, verse three, He's inviting others. He's saying, man, I've experienced the Lord's healing and goodness. I've internalized this. It's changed my perspective. And now, hey, would you come and look at this with me? Because gratitude is never something we can do alone. It's always something that we invite others into, right? When we praise, it's why you talk about your favorite coffee shop. It's why you talk about your favorite bake. You can't praise by yourself. That's weird, right? You, you've got to like invite others into it. And so there's a call here, not just to personal worship and gratitude, but to the power of corporate worship in helping us experience God together. Proclaim the Lord's goodness with me. Let us exalt his name together. Praise cannot be completed apart from community. And one of the tragedies of COVID is how it separated us from each other from a worship standpoint. And although people are physically beginning to come back to church, one of the things that research is, is noting is that people are coming back to church kind of, and you're all here, so I'm kind of speaking to the, you know, preaching to the choir here, so don't hear me as like shaming you, you're all here today. But, but people are coming back less frequently. People that used to attend weekly now are bi-weekly or maybe once or twice a month. People that used to come every few weeks now are coming every few months. And I get it, right? Like life is busy, life is full, weddings, trips, the, and you know, it's always that question on like, you're going away on a weekend. Do we come back on Sunday? But yeah, that's a lot of work and I, you know, time and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to go back. It's just boring. It's just, you know, we're just, I know what you guys think. <laughs> but man, what if, you're, what if you're missing out 
on an opportunity to encourage our brothers and sisters? What if, what if the church suffers? What if we are a body, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and when you're not here, we miss out on you calling us into this kind of praise and worship and thanksgiving of God? Because maybe I've had a terrible week, and at the passing of the peace, I need you to remind me what you're grateful for so that I can borrow your gratefulness, and maybe that becomes a bridge to get me to next week. But if you're not here, I don't get to experience that. And so I don't say this to shame us. You should come to church more often. I actually just wanna be invitational with this. I wanna provoke a holy jealousy. We're like, if you don't get to come to worship, you're sad because you're missing out. Like we need our spirits lifted. We need gratitude and thanksgiving and opportunities to praise. And here's the thing, you cannot do that sitting alone in nature. I don't care, I know people say God is in nature. He is in nature, but you can't do this in nature by yourself. You can't do this in an Airbnb with just your family. And so, man, I wanna create like a holy jealousy for what happens here, where there's a sense of anticipation. When we come together, we worship God, we encourage one another, we borrow from one another, and we sing and we lift our hands and we bless each other and we clap and we dance and we celebrate and we work the goodness of God into our collective imagination, into our bodies, into our souls. We need embodied presence to do that. We can't do it digitally. We can't. It's the one thing you cannot do virtually. You can't. Neuroscience tells us we are shaped and influenced in the presence of other people, development and transformation happens in the presence of other people where our brains literally have to communicate with each other. We don't even realize it's happening. You know how you get around certain people like Debbie Downers and you're just like, why do I just feel terrible? It's like, oh. And then you get around, you know, Robin, who's like the most joyful person in the world. I just feel better about my life. I wanna be around Robin. That's what's happening. It's like your brains are communicating. What would it look like for us to become a community of praise where that sort of resonance and attunement is not something we have to do, but something we get invited into every week? Why would you miss family dinner, right? Why would you, like, you wouldn't do that with your own family, like a family dinner on Sunday. Well, it's not that big a deal. If I'm not there, you know, they won't miss me. We do, we will. So I wanna encourage us to think about increasing in this moment and being counter where our cultural moment is going, not doing less of this, but doing more of it and doing it with more vibrancy, doing it with more vitality, allowing the radiance of God to kind of flow out into us together and stirring up, as Hebrews says, love and good works as we gather together. Okay, second thing, much quicker, relational intimacy. So not just worship, relational intimacy. The language here in Psalms is all about intimacy. God is available to us. He's near to us. To experience him is to experience his intimacy. I sought the Lord, David says, and he answered me and rescued me. Those who look to him are radiant. Face-to-face -face relationship. The angel of the Lord, God's presence, encamps around those who fear him. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry for help. The righteous crowd the Lord hears. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. All, all I'm saying here is that radiance comes alive in response to God's invitation to cultivate an active, intimate, vibrant relationship with God. Please do not reduce Christianity down 
to attending religious services and just going to Bible studies, which I'm for those things. I just talked about it. That will not sustain you. It's, it's not the same thing as experiencing God. How many times have you walked into this place and walked out and not experienced God? How many times you open your Bible and not experience God? So we, we need to cultivate this relational orientation with God. David's listening to God. David is walking with God. He's speaking with God. He's waiting on God. He's hoping in God. He's confessing his sins in the presence of God. He's seeking a relationship with God. He's commuting with God on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. He's moved from like a kind of prayer life with God that just talks at God to one that talks with God and is learning to be with God in the everyday life stuff that he's experiencing. And God has become a, a conversation partner, a relational partner for him in his real life. And so I, we don't have time to go deep into this. I just want to point you to a couple of the key ingredients in that intimacy. You can just write these down. Unhurried time. Number one thing, you will never, ever cultivate intimacy with God if you're in a hurry. You can't do it. Hurry and love are incompatible, right? My kids tell me this all the time, Dad, quit rushing us. Like at dinner the other night, they're talking, and I'm like trying to be spiritual. You know, it's God, what are you thankful for? How was your day? And like one of them starts talking, and I'm like, I like cut them off. And I was like, hey, who's next? And they're like, Dad, I wasn't done. What is wrong with you? Hurry is not compatible with love. Slow down. Vulnerability, right? There's a sort of openness where we have to bring our whole selves before God. He talks here about happy is the person who takes refuge in God. They, they literally, refuge, the idea is the stronghold where people would run in times of trouble or they're being attacked by another military. They get into the stronghold up on a hill behind the gates. They run to the secret place. We're often tempted to hide from God instead of hiding in God. With the psalmist, it's hiding in God, not hiding from God. I bring myself before you. I confess my fears. He says, open wide your life. Open wide your heart. Open wide your mouth, and I'll fill it. But only if you open yourself. If you are defended, you will not be able to receive the love of God. You will not be able to experience God and how many of us struggle with being closed off towards God. We're open like almost everywhere else in our lives. And with God, we're super closed. We'll text people all day long, talk on social media all the time. When it comes to God, it's like, I don't know how to pray. Really? You talk to people all the time. So there's a vulnerability in opening ourselves to God, confessing our sins, running to him instead of from him. Delight, right? Like happy is the person who takes refuge in him. There's a delight in God. The central power for transformation in the Psalms is not getting new morals. It's not forming a new morality. It is learning to delight and enjoy God. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. In God's presence, Psalm 16, 11, is fullness of joy forevermore and life forevermore. That's the key. It's delighting in God. And there's this weird dichotomy in some Christian circles where we talk about and we pit God's Holiness against happiness, right? Like I remember the first marriage book I read and like one of the opening lines of the book was like, what if God's vision for your, your marriage is not for you to be happy, for you to be holy? And I was like, what about, can I have both? Is God holy and not happy? I don't think so. So do I have to be holy and not happy? Or happy and not holy as some of us are? No. 
God wants us to enjoy him. Some of us are good at fearing him. We're good at learning from him. We're, lear- we're, we're, we're good at believing him and obeying him, but we don't enjoy it. If you want to read a book on this and you think I'm a heretic because I think happiness is actually all through the Psalms, I think it is the goal, happiness in God. What other alternative? Is there sadness or, you know, like anger? In God? I don't know what the alternative is. Randy Alcorn has a book called Happiness. I encourage you to read it. That's my theological defense of happiness. But we need to learn to enjoy God, to enjoy God's world. And, and the psalmist says, if we're going to do that, we've also got to make sure we turn away from lesser joys. Keep yourself from evil, your tongue from evil, your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good, right? We've got to turn away from other delights and turn ourselves towards God and delight in Him. And that's why we need daily rhythms of confession and repentance and prayer and scripture reading and Sabbath, right? And seasons of like retreating and celebrating and sabbaticals and solitude, like all of the things that the Bible talks about when it talks about spiritual practices are designed to create space for intimacy. Solitude doesn't save you. Daily prayer time doesn't save you, but it creates space for you to cultivate intimacy with God. We'll close here as we go to communion. Trouble. This is the weirdest one because we don't think of this as a pathway to experiencing God. Matter of fact, our culture works really hard to tell us to avoid trouble, to avoid pain, to avoid suffering, or to at least numb ourselves against it. And yet there's this juxtaposition here in the psalm of verse 5 and verse 18. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. And there's verse 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. My friend John says, this is a vision for the good life within a difficult life. It's possible to have the good life, to to be radiant, and yet to experience being crushed. You can have a difficult life and still live a good life in God and be satisfied with God. Trouble is inevitable in life, right? Sorrow, pain, loss, sadness. You cannot avoid it. We can't create a consumer society that buffers us. can't purchase your way through it, can't educate it out. It is the world in which we live for now. So trouble is inevitable. Choosing joy in the midst of that and cultivating joy and delight and radiance in the midst of that is not. It must be cultivated. And I love the realism here because David doesn't give us a passage about delighting in God and experiencing God and tasting and seeing God that is disconnected from darkness, that is disconnected from pain. This is a guy writing while his life is on the line. He's before Abimelech, a king, having to act insane so that they don't kill him. And this is the guy who says, it's possible to be happy and take refuge in God. I was doing a funeral a couple weeks ago. I was at the graveside and we were reading Psalm 23. And man, that Psalm 23 comes alive when you're sitting with a, a grieving widow. And I was struck by that line again in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And, and there's that line that is so often not, uh, missed or, or misunderstood. He prepares a table for me, where? In the presence of prosperity, right? 
Some of you guys know it. In the presence of my enemies. Wow. That's the kind of life that I want. That's the kind of radiance I want. I want to be able to feast in the presence of my enemies. I don't want to deny the darkness. I don't want to deny that hard things are happening. I don't want to deny the trouble and the losses and the difficulties of of marriage and raising kids and, and injustice and all the things that are happening. But I don't want to be cynical. I want to be able to feast and enjoy a good life within that difficult life. And that's the invitation, right? Like trouble can be a portal, a doorway into experiencing God because it's in the darkness we meet God because he's there. The psalmist teaches what it looks like to look to God in our darkness and say, God, it's dark, but you know what? I know you're here, and I know I can find you here, and I know it's not around this pain or darkness. It's through this pain that on the other side, I find real joy because in that space of darkness, I am stripped of everything else that I hope in. I am stripped of confidence in myself. I am stripped of confidence in anything or anyone else to save me. And as I'm emptied out of all my scaffolding, guess who's left? God. He's still there. And as I cling to him and I learn what it's like to be dependent on him, I learn the reality of Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. You know what it's like to be poor in spirit? Just destroyed. And yet, God's good. I'm experiencing his presence. This is the way that Jesus lived his life, right? This is what we celebrate in communion. Jesus who knew a man, Isaiah says, of sorrow and troubles. Jesus is the embodiment at the end of Psalm 34. Evil brings death. Those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. All who take refuge in him will not be punished. Jesus is punished as the only righteous one so that we don't have to be punished. He lived a life of sorrow and troubles, and yet he was radiant, radiant with the beauty and the glory of God, right? He lived his life as the most radiant human being ever, full of the spirit. He was joyful. He was always talking about making my joy complete. He had that life within a life. And I would argue the power to that life was the spirit of God that lived in him. And Jesus, when he died, before he died, went to his disciples and he said, in this world, you will have trouble too. A servant's not above their master. But take heart, two things. I've overcome the world and I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, you will do greater works than me. That's what we come to celebrate. And then he said this weird thing, eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) That's what we come to celebrate in communion that Jesus has set the table for us with his own body, with his own life. I've given everything to you, Jesus says. Now, give everything to me in return. That's what it means to be a disciple, to experience him, to make him your life, to feast on him, and to find in him fullness of life, fullness of joy, all that your heart longs for. That's what it means to experience God in the midst of the brokenness of life, and that's what we come to this table to celebrate to be reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, and it is his presence here with us by the power of his spirit that sustains us. And so we desperately need this reminder. And so I wanna invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus here in just a moment, to come and receive communion. We'll have stations at the front. 
We have wine here in the cups, bread, juice options, and gluten-free if you desire those. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you're trusting in him, and come to the table and receive again the reminder that God is with you and for you in Christ. And he invites you to taste and to see that he's good, to become happy as you find him as your refuge. Let me just pray over us. For those who are not followers of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here, but we'd invite you not to take communion as others come. This is a family meal to be shared by disciples. So let me pray for us. We'll confess together, and then you come as you feel led, and we'll sing these last couple songs. Our Father, we thank you for this invitation to taste and see that you're good. Would you make us radiant as we behold you, as we celebrate your life, death, and resurrection together? Would you remind us that you're here with us, that you're present to us, that you are at work, you've not abandoned us, God, and you continue to invite us to feast, to experience you, to worship you, to, to cultivate intimacy with you, to see even in our troubles, God, you are bringing resurrection out of death. As you lived and embodied that for us, you are inviting us into that same pattern of life. And so, God, would you just drill those things into our hearts here as we take communion together. Make us a radiant, beautiful church for the power of of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.